thing. And so thank you so much for, for being here early. Um, it's great to have you here. And so today, we are starting a new series. So you know that we finished, Richard finished off our series in Ezra last week. And today we start a series called King of Kings, which is going to take us all the way up to Christmas. So I have a question to ask you, because it is only six weeks till Christmas. Who's going to be brave enough to tell me that they've already put their decorations up? Has anybody done it yet? No? Okay, wow. That's pretty good. Go Well done. Good for you. You didn't go early. I know that there are a few people in the church who have probably already done it. So you've all escaped that. Maybe I bet somebody has, but they just won't dare say. Um, well, anyway, in the, in the four weeks that lead up to Christmas, as most of us will know, many church traditions celebrate Advent. And Advent is a period of time where we reflect on the anticipation that was felt across the world, that the world itself was experiencing in the run-up to Jesus' birth. And it's like a period of expectation, it's a period of waiting, and it's a period of longing for something. And so if we were to go to the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written over a 1,400-year time period, and it was completed some like 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And the key theme that draws every theme and every variety of book in the Old Testament together is this hope that somebody is going to be born to rescue the Jewish people. A king's going to come. They had this hope. They were living with this promise that a Messiah was going to come, not only to rescue them, but to be one who would administer justice to bring peace to the world that they lived in and to put an end to the evil they saw around them. And when we come to the New Testament, what we find is, is that there are at least 343 quotations of the Old Testament alongside another 2,309 allusions to Old Testament texts. And in all of those quotes and allusions, the, the New Testament writers are saying that the Old Testament has been making predictions about Jesus. They say, look, the person who you kept promising, the person you kept talking about, it was Jesus. It's Jesus. And they're saying, look, it shows who he would be. It shows where he'd be born. It shows what he would be like. You know, there's, there's, somebody's done the maths on this. A mathematician's worked out the probability of somebody just meeting 50 of those 343 requirements. And the probability is ridiculous. It's one to the power of 157. I don't know whether you've got the slide that shows you this. This is the number. I mean, how good would it be to put a pound on that, yeah? It'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? But the thing is, Jesus doesn't just fulfill 50. He fulfills every single one of them. That's incredible. If you don't know Jesus today, I just encourage you to look into that because there were people writing things down hundreds of years before Jesus was born and then the, the New Testament proves that Jesus fulfilled all of those things. And one of the main places we find these predictions, in fact, 60 of them come from the book of Isaiah. And it's a book that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And over the next six weeks, because we're going to stretch out Advent a little bit, because we all have a bit of Christmas, um, we're going to look at six of the prophecies that Isaiah makes about the Messiah. Because our culture starts now, doesn't it? The anticipation of Advent as we prepare for Christmas. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, about September, the shop started selling Christmas wrapping paper. And then all of a sudden, Halloween finishes and we go full on Christmas in the shops. Um, I've now been getting like the, the tickets through for the Christmas fairs for my kids' school. Maybe you're the same. Maybe you've received things through the post. And then this week, this is the real dawn that the Christmas is upon us. The John Lewis advert comes out, yeah? That's when we know that Christmas is upon us. But again, Jesus doesn't get a look in this year with the John Lewis advert. In fact, it's a Venus flytrap. I don't know if you've seen the, the, the um, thing yet. I don't know if we put, there it is. Um, it's quite a funny advert, but it's not really about Christmas. But 
Whether we're Christians or not, what happens is at this point in the year, we all start to step into an Advent mindset. There's an anticipation, there's an expectation, there's a waiting in us. Because in each of us, whether we know Jesus or not, there's something in all of us that longs for something more than just for ourselves. Uh, we, we long for something more for ourselves and also the world around us. We look at our own lives, we see voids we can't fill, but we also look at the world around us and we see the brokenness. We had this morning with Remembrance Sunday, you know, it, the fresh thing in most of our minds is what's going on in Israel and Gaza at the moment. We see the brokenness in our world, whether that's war or social injustices or the, the climate crisis. We see the world broken. And what happens is at Christmas, whether you know Jesus or not, these desires come to the surface. It's not only the hope of something better at Christmas, but it's also the expectation because where Christmas lies in the year that maybe next year, maybe 2024 is going to be better than the year that we currently live in. There's this hope in us, this anticipation in us. And this drive and this desire we have is not new. Um, in fact, it goes all the way back throughout history. And we see this in the Bible. We long for more, all of us do, because we know that what we have and what there is isn't working. Our lives get spent pursuing contentment, acceptance and peace. And so what happens is in attempts to try and find those things, what we do is we pursue a variety of different things, hoping they will satisfy the longing that we each have. Um, I'm hoping that most of you have seen or read Lord of the Rings. If you haven't, I don't know where you've been for the last however long. But in Lord of the Rings, there's this character, Frodo Baggins, if you don't know, who's short with hairy feet, a little bit like me. Um, and what happens is he, he, the story is, is his journey to destroy this ring. And it's the ring of power. That whoever wears this ring gets power. And everybody wants the ring. So he has to be really careful. And everybody thinks that by having it, what they can do is they can make the changes that need to happen in their world in Middle Earth. They think if they put the ring on, everything will be better. They think that they could fix the problems because they'll have the power and the control to fix them. But as we learn when we read the books and we see the movies, the ring corrupts the wearer. So you look at Gollum, he's a corrupted individual. But it's not just an object that we can look to for fulfil our longings. We can also look to human-made systems. So my daughter Edie has been unwell this week and so um, she wanted me to sit with her. So I was replying to some emails and she was watching Mary Poppins. Good for her. It was a great, it's, I forgot how good it was. Um, in fact, I stopped replying to emails at one point and started just watching it with her. But I've forgotten that, that the character in that film that goes on the biggest journey isn't the Banks children in the story. It isn't Bert. It's definitely not Mary, but it's Mr. Banks. Mr. Banks is, an, is a banker. I mean, they really thought of an inventive name for him, didn't they? And what he's doing is he's placing all his need for fulfillment, for joy, for peace in an institution, in the bank. He hopes that his British gentleman lifestyle will be fulfilled, will be good, because, because he's got solidarity in the bank. To banks, money is security, is safety and is stability, as is him being British. But the bank fails banks. And his worldview gets completely turned upside down as Mary Poppins arrives and shows him that his pursuit is empty and meaningless. Or uh, let me give you a third analogy. Um, this week, Wayne Rooney spoke on the Rob Burroughs podcast about how he was using alcohol um, to help him escape the pressure and fame of success. He hoped that alcohol would free him. But what he realised was that alcohol became imprisoning to him. 
You see, sometimes what happens is rather than putting our hope in an institution or in an object, we put our hope in something to help us escape from it. So we either put our hope in something that we might change it, like banks with the bank, or like the ring of power in Lord of the Rings, or we try and escape everything altogether, like Wayne Rooney did with his misuse of alcohol. And what happens is these things are idols to us. We end up worshipping them. Ray Ortland says that an idol is anything other than God that we make essential for our peace, our self-image, our contentment, our sense of control and our acceptability. We make these things idols. And they've always been a problem for us as humans. Right from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The apple on the tree was an idol for Adam and Eve. They thought it would give them what they wanted. They made it more important to them than God. We all take on idols at times in our lives. We think that they are going to serve us, but ultimately we serve them. Wayne Rooney's alcohol addiction or the ring of power in Lord of the Rings are great examples of that. How we end up serving something that we think is going to serve us. And in Isaiah, before the passage that I'm going to read in a minute, we find God calling out the idols. It says this in chapter 41. God says this to the idols. Come Holy Spirit. God says this. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things that are to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Idols, God says, can't help explain your past. They can't predict your future. They can't act at all. They can't fix what is broken. They are worthless things. But yet so often our hearts are drawn to things other than God himself. And through Isaiah, God says, behold your idols. Look at what they give you. Nothing. They can't fix what is broken in you or the world around you. But then what God does is he goes on to reveal his antidote to the problem. And he says this, Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 7. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what the God, the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So firstly, in chapter 41, we get the problem, behold your idols. Then in chapter 42, we get this ah oh, moment, as God says, here is my servant. 
As I mentioned, Edie's been unwell this week, which has been unexpected, and it's become like a large part of our week. And we had to work out who was going to stay home with us. Um, initially, we thought she just had a bug, and so we just did what any parent would do. We gave her ibuprofen and cowpole. We dosed her up, expecting it to work. And then by about Tuesday evening, we started to get concerned that maybe something else was going on. We thought maybe something was underlying was happening, and so we called Paul, um, and uh, Paul is, uh, is, is one of our, our doctors from local surgery, so we gave him a ring, and Paul came round, thank you so much, Paul, and he said, yes, she's got an ear infection, so he administered her some antibiotics. Come the next, even like the day, the day afterwards, she started to turn a corner. We started to realise that the, the, the antidote worked. The thing that she needed worked. You see, Claire and I thought we know what she needed. We thought she just had a bug. But it turned out she had something much deeper underlying, and she needed some serious medicine for it in order to sort it out. In this passage, God reveals his servant as the antidote to our problem of idolatry. You see, no amount of other cures that we might try out are ever going to work. We don't need idols, God says. We need his servant. We need Jesus. But what is this servant like? Well, firstly, if we read this passage, we find that the servant that God promises has authority and power. He's going to bring justice to the nations. He has authority to establish justice. He also has the authority to release people from captivity. This servant has the authority of a king. It's not the authority that King Charles has, yeah? This week, he delivered the government's agenda for the next sitting of parliament, and he literally read out what the government are going to do. He had no authority of his own. He got given the piece of paper and read it out. He has very little real authority. He is simply a mouthpiece for others. I'm not saying he doesn't do some amazing things. I don't know if you've seen that he's going to start this almost like a food bank project. That's fantastic. But, it, but the authority that our king has is different from other nations. Say like um, King Salman in Saudi Arabia, who rules an absolute monarchy. What King Salman says goes. There isn't no way out of it. And the servant will be a king with absolute authority. He doesn't wield his power, though, for evil. He wields it for good. He's not a despot. He isn't like many of the kings who flood the pages of the Old Testament who cared neither about God or the people, but they just cared about themselves. This king cares about us. This servant cares about us. He seems to care about justice, not only for us as individuals, but he also cares for the world around us. And he comes to stand with the weak. He comes to heal the sick. He comes to free those who are in prison. He's not a mute idol, but he's one who has the authority and the ability to do something. And the key theme we see when we read Isaiah 42 is there's one word that gets repeated a few times. It's justice. It's justice. This king comes to pursue justice. He comes to seek out justice. He is the just king. But what does this justice look like? Well, I think it looks like uh, three different things. First of all, it looks like a justice that stands against evil. You and I, we, we always want those that have done wrong to be held accountable for what they've done, unless we're the wrongdoers, yeah? We want, we want them to be held accountable, unless it's us who's done the deed. But so often, what happens is in our societies, we think justice is justice, but it's not. It's actually revenge. So... One comment on social media, for example, can not only lead to a torrent of abusive responses, but undermine people's careers and friendships and lives. We see this all the time. And this happens because people want justice, but there's no one to step in and bring the justice they want. So what they do is they do try and enact it themselves. And that's revenge. 
Revenge is actively getting your own back on someone who has wronged you. Justice, however, involves a third party. One who can fairly come and bring a judgment against wrongdoing. Jesus comes to be the just judge. He comes to step in as the third party so that rather than taking revenge, we know that we have one who is going to come and be our just judge, able to make just decisions, able to stand in our place against evil. In Colossians 2, it says that on the cross, Jesus has triumphed over powers and principalities. He has defeated evil. He comes to be the one who stands in our place. That we don't seek revenge, but we find justice because of him. So that's the first thing. This is a justice that stands against evil. But secondly, Jesus' justice is also for the innocent and the oppressed. It's for those who have been wrongly accused. I saw this story this week. In, In 2006, a Philadelphia teenager called Gary Hall was fatally shot. His friends thought they knew who had done it. And so it was the, it was the, they thought it was the brother of another boy that they'd seen this, this lad, Gary Hall, arguing with earlier that day. And so seeking justice, but rather enacting revenge, Gary's friends went out and they killed the boy they thought had done it. However, the police had completely other ideas. They pinned the blame on another teenager, a boy called David Sparks. Sparks was out that day but was tagged for another offence and he had broken his curfew. So they initially thought, well, it must be him then. He had witnessed the killing. He had phoned 911 to tell 911 that this boy had been shot. Yet despite the lack of evidence, murder charges were brought against David Sparks. Sparks, still a teenager at the time, ended up having to represent himself in court and he failed. And he was sentenced for a lifetime prison term. In 2013, so 10 years ago, the Philadelphia Innocence Project became became involved in Sparks' case, having noticed that there were just several inconsistencies with the evidence that had been presented. They, like Gary Hall's friends, thought it was this other boy that had already been killed. A judge reheard the case about two years ago, and this week on the 6th of November, Sparks was freed after being found not guilty. Sparks tried to find justice for himself, but he met an unjust system. Some think this was down to his colour of his skin, that he was, he was basically blamed for this just because he was black. He needed somebody to step in and take the case for him. And in the same way, Jesus comes to bring freedom to each one of us. He comes to bring freedom to, to us who are caught in prisons of sin and shame. But also when we see stories like this, it should stir something in us. We think that's just not right. How could anybody be convicted for something they didn't do? But this just judge, this servant, comes and stands with us at our darkest and most broken moments. He comes to stand with the oppressed and he comes to free us. Maybe this morning you are oppressed. Maybe you're standing under oppression. It might be, might be a habit. It might be a, um, something going on in your life. Maybe it's a relationship that is oppressive. Jesus wants to come and bring freedom to you. He comes to stand with us in our brokenness. Just like the Philadelphia Innocence Project stood with David Sparks in his moment of crisis and freed him. So Jesus comes and stand with us. He doesn't break bruised reeds, says our text. He doesn't snuff out smouldering wicks. He comes to stand with us. When we're most broken, when we're most fragile, this king, this servant comes and stands with each one of us. Thirdly, 
This servant's justice is not only against evil and for the broken, but it's also for creation. When we think about it, every system of government that's human-made is fundamentally unjust. It's unjust, isn't it not? That 50% of the world's wealth belongs to 1% of humanity. Doesn't that, isn't that unjust? That we have very few people with all the money? Isn't it unjust that our children have access to free education in this country? We praise God for it. And, you know, some of the freedom that our children have and education our children have, again, is, is, is we remember today because of other people in the past, we have that. But it's unjust that we have that and there are people in the world who don't have that. That there are parts of the world where they have no education. And there are some parts of the world where it's only boys who get educated. That isn't wrong. It's wrong. It's unjust. It's unjust that there are homeless people living on the streets in Ashford. That's unjust. It's unjust. It's unjust that the elderly are not honoured in our society, but they are impoverished. It's unjust when you hear the stories in winter of older people dying because they're not able to pay their heating bills. It's unjust when civilians have to flee homes and lives because of war. We feel that injustice. We know it's wrong, don't we? Don't we not know that's wrong? Yet every attempt to fix these issues circles back for us to idolatry. Our collective arrogance as humanity seems to think we, think we can fix all of the problems ourselves, yet we end up making it worse. And if this way, what happens is we make society, politics, idols, sorry, and our ideals idols. We make all of these things idols for us. We think we're going to fix the problem. Yet God says in our text this morning, behold my servant. Jesus has come as the just king, the one who can break the idols that we create for ourselves and bring justice. And we believe as Christians that when he returns, we will all know and see him. We will see the king return to enact justice. But yet we live in this period of waiting. Just how we do in Advent, we, as, 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 as the world waited for the king in the first, the first time round, again now we are waiting for the king to come. To come and renew the heavens and the earth. You see, we're currently separated from the perfect justice of this servant. The perfect justice of heaven. But we believe that one day we will know Jesus and we will see him make all things new. Just as heaven and earth, they, in the Garden of Eden, there's this image in Genesis that heaven and earth like mingled together. It says that God walked with Adam and Eve. Heaven and earth, there was no separation. Adam and Eve knew what it was like to know God and walk with him. When Jesus returns, he will rebuild, remake creation in this way. He will break every human idol, every power, every principality, and we will see heaven and earth united again. And on that day, we will know total justice. But yet we still live in this time period. From the moment we're born to the moment we die, we live in a world of injustice. So how do we apply this this morning? Well, you and I have been commissioned. If we're Christians, we've been commissioned by our just king, by the servant. We have been given the role of displaying the justice of the king to the world around us. In every situation we face, we can bring the justice of heaven. We can stand against evil. We can stand up for the oppressed. We can stand up for, for God's creation. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. It's to want to be like him, to want to follow his ways. You and I have been called. We've been called to bring the justice of the kingdom 
into the lives of those around us. That means that we have a role, a key role in society to speak against evil, to stand up for the oppressed. We're not called to walk on by when we see somebody oppressed. But when we see somebody oppressed, we're called called to serve them in love. That means if we see a homeless person, we give them a tent. We're called to be those people that care for those who are oppressed and demonstrate Christ's kingdom to the world around us. But also for some of us, there's, 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 there's a step beyond this for some of us. And this is where I want to close this morning. I suppose it's a little bit of a challenge. Because I know, and we've spoken about this before, for some of us, justice is not only something that we just, we go, yeah, I know I need to bring justice to the world. But it's like, this is the fire that burns within us. God's like ignited this thing in us. We long to see the oppressed set free. Because God's placed that in you as a passion and a desire. And it's like God's commissioned you to be carriers of that in a way beyond other people around you. And you care deeply about those who are broken, that you might see them free, uplifted and restored. I just, I want to challenge you, I suppose, because I really believe that there are some projects in some of us that God wants to birth in our church community. I believe that God's put some things in some of our hearts for justice. We want to see the oppressed set free. And I really believe that um, for some of us, you've got like a dream on this. It's like this is the thing you long to see. And so I just encourage you that start praying this prayer. God, would you show me the project you want me to do? And then when God starts speaking to you about it, come and speak to us as a leadership team about it. Because I really believe that as a church community, we are called to see the oppressed set free. And I believe that God is placing some, a heart for justice in some of us to see that happen. So that's my challenge to you this morning, that maybe that's you today but let's close in prayer shall we as we finish this morning Jesus we thank you Lord we as on remembrance day Lord we remember those that have lost their life for us Lord we and look around at the world around us and still see the brokenness we still see war we still see the oppressed we still see those who are in captivity we still see the hungry, the needy, the uneducated. Lord, we see the world around us. We know that it is broken. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us, your people, to be a light in the darkness, to be a city set on a hill. And Jesus, I pray for each one of us that you might use us this week to demonstrate the justice of heaven to those around us. And Jesus, I pray that where we encounter evil this week, that you would give us the voice and the power to speak against it. Lord, where we meet people who are oppressed, maybe they are, they've been wrongly accused of something. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to help see them set free. Jesus, I, I pray, Lord Jesus, for our world. Lord, we are, we are called to pray the prayer, Jesus, come again. So we pray again, Lord, we've prayed it once already this morning, but Jesus, we know that whilst we bring your kingdom now, it is, only, it is only a sign pointing to the kingdom that is to come. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we might see you come again. Come again, Lord Jesus. Come make all things new. Come bring an end to oppression. Come bring an end to war. Lord, that we might see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, I pray for people here, people whose heart is for justice. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you might start speaking to them. I believe you've told me that you're going to do that. 
So Lord, I pray that you might start speaking to them as individuals. I pray that you might start putting the dream of projects in people's hearts. Lord, that this church, Lord God, will be a church known for, for seeing the justice of the kingdom come in people's lives. Amen. Amen.